Hi, thanks for downloading our sermon series from Church of the City in Guelph, Ontario. This sermon series, entitled Song of Songs, will contain adult subject matter and may not be suitable for all listeners. We wanted to give you this moment to consider the listening audience before proceeding. Again, thank you for downloading our podcasts. I have a helper with me this morning. Good morning, church. We are going to be continuing in reading Song of Songs, starting in chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, I believe our Front Lines team will be here handing them out. So if you don't have one and would like one, please raise your hand and they will pass one along to you. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take that home with you and that is our gift to you today. So we'll be reading from Song of Songs, chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Okay, Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 8 to 17. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away, For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, like a gazelle or a young stag on a cleft mountains. This is the word of the Lord. Well... It is good to be together again today. Song of Songs, chapter 2. Last week we finished off with verse 7 of chapter 2. That wasn't read for us this morning, but chapter 7, or verse 7 of chapter 2 goes like this. I adjure you that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And I discussed last week that that awakens us to the reality of the dangers of love, and that's where we're going to be headed today. Before we get to the dangers of love, however, let's take a moment to check in with how we're feeling. I'd encourage you to invite Jesus into that place, and then we'll continue forward. So I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to be together this morning. I thank you for our minds. I thank you for our hearts. I pray today that we would be open to what you want to do. Jesus, we invite you into those places, and we ask you to do a work in our hearts. Soften our hearts. Search our hearts. 
so that our hearts might be transformed. We need you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I heard this quote this week from a guy by the name of Bill Johnson, who's a Pentecostal pastor in the United States, and he was giving some commentary on Romans 1, which we looked at a little bit last week as it relates to God's design for marriage, as God is the designer of marriage and marital love. And he writes and he says this, when you get rid of the creator, you get rid of design. When you get rid of design, you get rid of purpose. When you get rid of purpose, you get rid of accountability. And when you get rid of accountability, you get rid of the need to answer for your choices. And when you get rid of people giving an account for their life, you remove the fear of God. And it's the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. And when you have no fear of God and no wisdom, all you are left with is total confusion. And this is the moment we find ourselves in as a culture. Absolutely brilliant. Now, I just want to say that I am excited by how many people are in our room here today. And what I think for that does for me is it awakens to the fact that are we live in a culture that is confused. And so all of you, as you hear, we're going to be talking about human love, human sexuality, intimacy, friendship, singleness. You're like, I got to show up because I got to learn. Now, as it relates to confusion, I would say that we are just confused as a culture related to the exact purpose of marriage. And some of that comes out in the reality of our culture of divorce. Now, I just want to say off the bat that as we talk about divorce this morning, I just want to say I recognize that divorce is an emotional topic. And I recognize that most people, when they get married, do not say on their wedding day, I hope one day to get divorced. I remember hearing someone, a woman, say that, you know, she became part of a church community and she felt like she was walking around with a big D on her head for divorce. And so this week, actually, I was actually having a couple conversations, uh, one with a woman who's in the midst of a separation, another uh, fellow who went through a divorce about five years ago. And so I recognize that this is an emotional topic and that no one sets out at the beginning of a marriage to get divorced. But we need to examine, the, have a perspective, and look at divorce in our culture, and therefore also look at what is God's purpose and design related to marriage. How do we move forward? What does, what does a healthy approach to marriage actually look like? This from an article from McGill Sociological Review. In 2003, 35 years after the adoption of divorce law, over a third of all marriages in Canada ended before their 30th wedding anniversary. To get specific, that works out to about 70,000 divorces in Canada every single year. And if a divorce represents two people, you multiply 70,000 times two, 140,000 individuals. Guelph is edging towards the 140,000 range. So picture a, a, a group of people the size of Guelph getting divorced every single year. Number of first marriages that end in divorce are 33%. Individuals who divorce more than once, 16%. The average duration of a marriage that ends in divorce is 14 and a half years. The average cost of a divorce is somewhere between $5,000 and $100,000. And believe it or not, 66% of all divorces are initiated by women. Men. We're on the hook. Some of the reasons for divorce, 
The relationship runs out of steam, fall out of love. There's a communication breakdown. There's unreasonable behavior. There's infidelity. There's a midlife crisis. There's been financial issues. There's physical, psychological, and or emotional abuse. It may go without saying, but there's significant impacts of divorce. If these are 140,000 individuals, some of these individuals will have had children, and 35% of Canadian children are affected by divorce, according to a 2013 study. Andre was in a thrift store this week and found a book, and the title of this book was, um, God, I need your help because my parents aren't living together anymore. And the book was filled out. And questions were asked of the book of, uh, what's your greatest wish? And this individual indicated that they wished that their dad would just take his pills. Uh, They wished that their dad would come home. And so the impact of divorce amongst children is significant. But then there's economic and financial realities of divorce. If there's 70,000 divorces in Canada a year, and $15,000 is the average cost of a wedding that works out to $1.05 billion. With 70,000 divorces multiplied by the average cost of a divorce of $50,000, that works out to $3.5 billion. Therefore, $1.05 billion plus $3.5 billion equals $4.55 billion related to divorce. Now, the question is, Why would you get married? If this is the potential realities, why would you get married? And so our culture has suggested, well, here are some alternative ways to approach marriage. So what should our approach to marriage be if this is the reality? Well, the first approach to marriage should be that marriage should be polyamorous. Essentially meaning monogamy is unattainable and unrealistic. We were meant to be polyamorous. Uh, in a new documentary series on Netflix called Explained. They did an episode actually on monogamy and why we have monogamy in their perspective. And this is what the narrator says. Monogamy and love aren't the same thing. Love is a feeling. Monogamy is a rule. You will only have sex with one person. Most people live in a culture where they're expected at some point to make that rule a legal contract called marriage. If we are lucky, moving forward, it will no longer be about what, kind of, what kinds of relationships we should have in the world. It's about design, designing the kinds of relationships we want to have. Humans may not have evolved to be sexually monogamous, but we have evolved to be adaptable. And as I mentioned last week, 70% of singles in our culture now approve of polyamorous relationships. Again, they're single people saying this or sexual relationships with a deep connection with more than one partner, but only 6% have actually practiced polyamory. So that's one option, okay? Polyamorous relationships. Option two, starter marriage or contractual marriage. This is what Susan Godot says in her book titled The Starter Marriage. A starter marriage is a short-term contract for couples to try on the institution to see if it fits without bringing children into the mix. Before jumping into a lifelong contract, We have learner's permits for driving, we have internships before starting careers, and we have probationary or modifiable contracts and many other business negotiations. Yet the greatest and most in-depth legal contract that most of us will ever enter requires that you commit to one person forever with precious little information about what it will entail. They call this also a contractual marriage in which married couples on their wedding day could say, are we going to decide upon a five-year 
Are we going to decide upon a 10-year? And at the end of those five, at the end of those 10, you have the decision, are we going to re-enter or are we going to exit and there'll be little ramifications? Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, have at it. But this is another option that's in our culture. Third, cohabitation. Don't get married. In 1961, married couples accounted for 91.6 of census families. By 2011, this has declined to 67%. From 1981 to 2011, the number of common law couples more than quadrupled. 345.2%. That's enormous. Now you might say, well, what's so bad with living together? Jonathan Grant, in his book, Divine Sex, says this about cohabitation. If intimate relationships were mortgages, we might call these subprime commitments. They are high-risk projects with little or no collateral security. Unfortunately, just like subprime mortgages, these relationships are designed to fail. Here are some of the statistics he, he lists. Only one in five cohabiting relationships end in marriage. Cohabiting significantly increases the likelihood of divorce. Women who cohabit multiple times before marrying divorce more than twice as frequently as those who live only with their future husband. Related to serial monogamy, that is a string of consecutive sexual relationships, actually hinders eventual marital satisfaction. While sexual experience before marriage is a good indicator for an increased likelihood of infidelity within marriage. So, three alternatives, or we consider the alternative that the scriptures give us as far as what is God's design around marriage and how does he allow us to approach it realistically so that we can go through this obvious danger as it relates to marriage. Philip Yancey in his book, Rumors of Another World, writes this, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. Outside the church, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. In a sex-saturated society, even true believers find it hard to accept traditional Christian morality offers the fullest, most satisfying life. The Pope utters pronouncements, denominations issue position papers, and many Christians ignore them and follow the lead of the rest of society. Surveys reveal little difference between church attenders and non-attenders in the rates of premarital intercourse and cohabitation. Surveys also show that millions of people have left the church in disgust over its hypocrisy about sex, especially when priests and ministers fail to practice what they preach. And so this isn't just an issue outside of the church, it's an issue inside of the church, and it's an issue in what the church has actually presented. Now, every time I do a wedding, I try to present in a short way, because most people don't want a 45-minute message at their wedding, the reason and purpose behind marriage. And for some people, that's the first time they hear it. And so my hope today as we talk about this, as we do this Song of Songs series, is that we would talk about what the reason and purpose for marriage is and how we go through and have opportunities in marriage amidst the incredible dangers that we find. And so enter the Song of Songs, a collection of erotic, love-filled poetry in the Old Testament. Let's pick up in verse 8. The voice of my beloved 
Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. The, the voice is that of a woman, and she's expressing her excitement and her desire for her lover to arrive. Now, you might wonder, men, uh, is there some sort of compliment coming out in being called a gazelle? Yes, there is. A gazelle is a swift and an athletic creature, as well as beautiful. And we read that he speeds across the mountains and hills, which indicates that the lover has overcome obstacles in his desire to reach the beloved, indicating his loving commitment and his ultimate determination that we shall meet together. Exciting. Now, then we read that he's gazing through the windows. Now, some of you are like, well, that's super creepy. Uh, inappropriate. Like, what's going on here, though? It's not a peeping Tom incident. His desire in gazing through the windows is that he will catch this woman's attention, and then he will be able to draw her away from this place to go out, as we're going to eventually see. And so he desires to woo her away from where she is, but he talks about this wall that's in the way for that to actually happen. Now, as I said, I'm, I'm quite cautious to approach this text in being a purely allegorical situation. As I described last week, some people have gone as far in saying it's completely allegorical, and anytime breasts are mentioned, it's the Old and the New Testament, which is just crazy when you really think about it. But what is going on here? What is, what is happening? And I think the point that we can make about marriage is this, is that sin has created a wall in marital love. If we're to think about the walls that exist within marriage— one of the primary things that is in the way between this person wooing this other person out is the sin that exists within marital love. Now you might say, well, why is it this way? As we explored a little bit last week, Genesis 3, verses 7 to 13, the result, the impact of Adam and Eve saying, God, we don't want to do it in your way. We want to do it in our own. We read this. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed figs leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking through the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree in which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, as I heard one uh, pastor say about this passage, he says, notice what the man says. The woman made me do it. And then he said, and men have been blaming women ever since. This is the impact of our rebellion. This is the impact of what the fall has meant in our life, that, that sin becomes and creates a wall in marital love, your own individual sin. So what are the, some of the walls that exist in marriage? Well, the first one is, is that we are sexually broken. What this means is that just because I get married does not mean I'm suddenly unattracted to any other woman in the world. It's not the way it works. I'm a person that's sexually broken. I'm being remade new because of Christ. But when I get married, I'm going to assume the fact that I'm not going to only be attracted to my wife. 
And so each of us are sexually broken. And so what that means is that we're also born and we have attractions that are not healthy for us, as we described and understood last week. Ultimately, we agree with what those are suggesting related to polyamory, but those who suggest polyamory don't believe in what God can do in resurrecting us, in restoring us, in rescuing us. And we can experience restoration and rescue. So we're not ultimately wired in our sinful state for monogamy. But what this also means is a side note to anyone, and now I say anyone because historically we've talked only to men, but do not assume that your pornography addiction will go away once you get married. It won't. You have an addiction and you need help. And I would encourage you, prior to involving another individual into your life, that you wrestle and you deal with that. Because the implications of addictive habits in marriage will become walls. Secondly, so firstly, we're sexually broken. Secondly, we are extremely self-centered. <laughs> How many of you wake up in the morning and you just wake up with the thought of, what am I going to do for everybody else today? I wake it up and I'm like, how can I extend the time that I'm going to spend in bed this morning? <laughs> Hopefully Andrea gets up first to be with the boys. I wake up and I'm immediately self-centered in culture. It only accentuates this by telling us that marriage is about you. You maybe heard of the organization, uh, the business called Ashley Madison, in which they tried to arrange affairs for people. And their slogan was, life is too short, have an affair. Don't stay in your marriage and work on it. Have an affair. It's about you. So we're extremely self-centered. But then thirdly, we hold extremely unrealistic expectations of marriage and of people we marry. I uh, do premarital counseling, and I use this survey called Prepare and Rich. And I'm finding that increasingly, couples are answering in agreement with some of the following statements. First statement, at times, I don't expect our marriage will be disappointing and frustrating. Married people, that's not true, is it? I don't expect the romantic love in our relationship to fade somewhat over time. Married people, that's not true either. Increasing the amount of time we spend together will automatically improve our relationship. It's not true either. Nothing could cause me to question my love for my partner. Also not true. I wish. Time will resolve most of the problems we have as a couple. Married people. Also not true. But as I said, increasingly, couples are believing these things. And so you've got to ask the question, why are we so unrealistic about marriage? Well, number one, the right person myth. Idea being, if I find the right person, there will be no conflict. If there is conflict, I must not be with the right person. Friends, every relationship you enter into will have conflict. And if we're to simply think about the right person, think about the domino effect, the logistical domino effect of if you pick the wrong person, someone else has picked the wrong person. So you better get divorced so you can go and find their person. But what if they don't get divorced at the right time? Then you might not never end up being with the right person. Friends, you could probably be matched with any number of different people in this world. And you're going to have conflict. So what do you do? 
you make it work. You work on your conflict. Every human relationship ought to have conflict. They ought to have conflict. Secondly, why are couples increasingly unrealistic? The completion myth. I've named this one. Essentially, I need to find someone who completes me and meets my needs perfectly. This is so perfectly illustrated. I know some of you have heard me say this before. I know there's not a lot of new people in the room, though. That when I'm sitting at a wedding, and at some point the couple, when they eventually give their speech before everyone, and they say, I found you, you've completed me. And I just want to say, liar! Or like, you make me the happiest person in the world. That's going to stop eventually. You know, like, we just, it's so false. But we're expecting that the person that we enter into a lifetime commitment with is going to complete us? No other human being on this planet will complete you. The hole in your heart is far too great for another human being to fill. And the pressure that you place on another person, asking them to fulfill every single one of your needs. Like imagine waking up every morning and being like, we're going to talk about sex in a couple weeks, but imagine waking up and being like, listen, I've got sexual needs today and you need to complete me for them. Like good luck having that relationship work out. So there's the right person myth, the completion myth. And then there's the exciting marriage myth. Marriage is going to be exciting. We're going to get married. It's, we're going to live together. It's going to be great. Friends, marriage is very boring. <laughs> marriage is very mundane. And culture typically doesn't focus on couples in their 18th year of marriage. Like, when was the last time you watched a movie and there was, like, a love scene that was, like, between a couple that had been married for 18 years? They don't focus on those ones. They focus on, like, single fit people. (laughs) Right? And there's absolutely no cleanup required. Like, it's just crazy what we expect. And we expect that marriage is just going to be all exciting and amazing. It's going to be fireworks. My goodness, like... We wake up, I take the kids to daycare, I take Nixon to school. Sometimes that goes smoothly, sometimes it doesn't. Andre and I have this little back and forth between us, and I expect that you will not get really upset with me, but we, there's little emojis that you can like obviously send each other, and we send each other little running people. And that's our indication to one another when we're not around, when the other one's with the kids, that it's like, I'm about to run, so you need to get home. That's more what it's like. And sometimes it's boring. And once you have kids, it's like, okay, I guess we're staying in tonight, 7 o'clock on. That's just what it's like. Now, that doesn't mean there are no exciting times in marriage. Please don't hear that. But there's this myth that marriage is going to be extremely exciting. Now, you might ask the question, well, how do we change this? How do we couples be more realistic? I think one of the ways we got to do this is that we need couples at all stages influencing one another, especially young people watching healthy marriages or marriages that maybe aren't always healthy, but they do conflict well together. Let's keep going. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens at figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. 
O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. The woman here speaking is quoting the man, and he's trying to continue to woo her away, to come away into the fields. Ultimately, he's saying, come, it's springtime, the time of lovemaking. Come away with me. Let's be together. He's saying the signs are, are evident. The flowers are coming out. They're singing. The turtle doves, come away with me. We understand in verse 14 that she's presently separated from him, indeed hidden from him, and he wants her to join him. She is in a barren and threatening environment, the place that she is in contrasts well with the place that he desires to bring her. The overall theme is that he's trying to draw the woman out of her hiding and into the springtime air. So here's more of the danger of marital love. Marital love is vulnerable and dangerous and requires wooing one another out of hiding. Marital love is vulnerable and dangerous and requires wooing one another out of hiding. You might say, well, why vulnerable and dangerous? Well, number one, we like to hide. We like to hide as individuals. Our hiding is often protective patterns and behaviors that we developed, often in response to wounding that happens in our childhood that prevent people from getting too close to us. Symptoms of our harmful hiding might be patterns of isolation, loss of freedom and responsibility, living in denial, or ultimately living in the past. If this is starting to intrigue your mind of like, maybe that's me, I'd highly encourage you to read the book Hiding from Love by Dr. John Townsend. But why is it vulnerable and dangerous? Because we like to hide. But then secondly, marriage exposes you. Marriage exposes you. You cannot hide your sinful self and your bad habits. I remember hearing of this illustration related to marriage of this couple, and the woman left cupboard doors open or drawers open, and the man was getting frustrated. And so one day he kept telling her, would you please close the doors? And so one day their child actually ran and hit their head off of a closet door, and they had to rush the child to the hospital. And the man thought, this is going to be great motivation. They're definitely, she's definitely going to close the doors now. Only to the day after returning from the hospital, the drawers open again. But what did he do? He said, okay, I guess she opens them. I guess I close them. Such is marital love. And this is a very simple, illustrative example of the fact that when you get married, you get exposed. You are exposed, and marriage exposes you. So it's vulnerable and dangerous for that reason. But then also the impact of the one flesh, which we talked about last week, and what God brings a couple together, they become one flesh. And as we will discuss, this isn't just one flesh sexually. It is about every arena of your life. You no longer are an individual with problems because your problems are now interconnected with another human being. I remember hearing somebody say once, there's no such things as, as marriage problems. There's two individuals with problems that try to make a marriage work. And that's what happens. When you get married, you commit to wooing each other until death do us part. It's work, but if you don't want it, please do not get married. Now on the topic of marriage, on the topic of divorce, Jesus actually addresses divorce in Mark 10, verses 7 to 9. And he's asked a question by the Pharisees related to the legitimacy of divorce. And Jesus answers this way. 
From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, contrary to progressive views related to sexuality, Jesus here is addressing God's design for sexuality and for intimacy. And in response to the questions about the legitimacy of divorce, Jesus, is in, in his response, is both tough and he is also tender. Jesus is tender in that he acknowledges that there are concessions regarding marriage and divorce. You might say, well, what is a concession? A concession is not what God intends, but is given because of human hardness of heart. But it should never be option one. Some potential concessions in the Bible for divorce, adultery, Matthew 19, abandonment, 1 Corinthians 7, and abuse, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 15. But as I said, that does not mean that just because these happen does not mean divorce is the best option. Secondly, Jesus is tough regarding divorce because he, he appeals to the Genesis 2 creation account and his command about marriage. And a command is something that God gives because it represents his ultimate desires. So why is Jesus both tough and tender regarding divorce? He's tender because he understands that we live on this side of Eden, but also this side of the new heavens and the new earth. And so he extends his grace and forgiveness because our rebellion and our hardness of heart. But then he's also tough because God hates relational brokenness and sin and the consequences of our sin. So marital love is vulnerable and dangerous. But that's not all it is. And marital love provides an opportunity to come out of hiding and to be known. And this is an incredible opportunity. Tim Keller, in his book, fantastic, I'd highly recommend it. I have every couple I do counseling, marital counseling, premarital, post, with, is The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And he writes this about what are some of the opportunities or the benefits of marriage. First thing that he lists, based upon statistics of married people, is greater physical and overall emotional health. You grow in your ability to handle disappointments, illnesses, and other difficulties. Married people often hold each other to high levels of personal responsibility and self-discipline. For example, this is statistically related, continuously, married people are actually better off in a couple of ways. 75% of continuously married people oftentimes have more wealth than those who are divorced or never get married. Married men oftentimes earn 10 to 40% more than do single men with similar education and job histories. And some of the reason for that is because oftentimes married men, they've had to, as you understand this in the biblical analogy, that is iron sharpens iron. As I said, marriage exposes you and it causes you to have to grow. And so you learn how to work with other people. Secondly, the opportunity provided in marital love, greater overall satisfaction in life. Consistently, married people show higher degrees of satisfaction with their lives than those who are single, divorced, or living with a partner. Thirdly, believe it or not, married people statistically have better sex. Contrary to popular opinion, married couples statistically don't have worse sex than singles, but better. 
In their groundbreaking study, The Case for Marriage, Linda J. Waite and Maggie Gallagher point out that 40% of married people have sex twice a week, compared to 20% of single and cohabitating men and women. Over 40% of married women said their sex life was emotionally and physically satisfying, compared to about 30% of single women. 50% of married men are physically and emotionally content versus 38% of cohabitating men. That from Mark Clark's The Problem of God. And then fourthly, the opportunity provided in marriage is matured character. In some ways, we become more like Jesus. Now, Jesus was single, so that's not the analogy I'm using. But you grow. You have to mature in your character. Nothing can mature someone's character like close, intimate relationships. My sister-in-law was once asked the question by someone who uh, was not a follower of Jesus, and they said, uh, what, you've, you've dated both Christian guys and non-Christian guys. What's the difference? And she said, well, of the Christian guys, they want to become more like Jesus. The non-Christian guys don't. And so they're comfortable staying where they are. The Christian guy, though, they want to get better. They want to become more like Jesus. Now, I would just say, friends, if you are a Christian guy, that's the standard you ought to hold for yourself and your growth, is that you become more like Jesus. You can't keep saying, well, you know, I'm this personality type, so too bad. No, you got married. You asked somebody to sharpen you. You need to continually grow. Let's continue in the text. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossoms. Now, foxes in this are an adversary to the health of a vineyard, the well-being of the vineyard, and therefore they must be caught and the, the imperative in the actual Hebrew language here is to catch them aggressively and quickly. They are a threat to the relationship. So what do we apply from this? Well, marital love must be aggressively protected. Aggressively protected. You must work at creating a flourishing environment where the intimacy of soul, of mind, of body, and spirit is possible. You must fight for your marriage and remove the foxes that are trying to spoil it. According to statistics, criticism, defensiveness, contempt, stonewalling, and lust are things that get in the way of marital love and opportunity. You must work at your marriage, in particular your communication, your finances, your sex, your children, and your relationship with your in-laws. Can I get an amen from married people? <laughs> amen. Yeah. Finally, you must nourish your marriage. Go on date nights. Just because you get married doesn't mean you're not going to be able to, you shouldn't not have any more date nights. You should probably have more. You need to nourish your relationship. You know, I, you can even talk about the five love languages, and this will really throw you for a loop. But Andrea, she's a quality time person. So what that means is that she wants quality time. And so she'll say, we haven't had enough quality time lately. And I'll be like, we, uh, we watched a movie together last night. That was, that was quality time. She's like, no, that's not quality time. We've got to go out. We've got to have an experience okay, let's go out and have an experience. But it's not where I initially go to. I'm like, just tell me I'm awesome. That would be great as a words of affirmation person. That's the way that marriage is. But you must nurture, nourish your marriage by going on date nights, taking opportunities to get away together, 
married couple setting an opportunity of two or three times a year, just getting away for a night or for a weekend. Be fantastic. Verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. Verse 16, the all-encompassing theme is that they belong to each other. He grazes among the lilies. Now this actually could be a reference to the female body and that he is covering her body with kisses. Verse 17, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. This actually could be a reference to the woman's breasts. The man was out there on the hills, and now he is in here with his lover. Wow. How do we apply? Well, marital delight is experienced when walls are torn down, and we come out of hiding into a flourishing place. Marital love is experienced when walls are torn down, when we come out of our hiding, and we come into a flourishing environment of our marriage. I think this is why the whole idea of makeup sex has become such a thing. In other words, there was an issue, you work through it by connecting emotionally, and then you're ready for the physical connection. Now, Unlike any other worldview or approach to marriage, I believe that as followers of Jesus, and if you're a follower of Jesus, I believe this is free. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I mean, you can continue to explore the alternatives that our culture is suggesting, but I would encourage you to examine what God designed and what his desire for marriage is and also what the gospel provides for us. And the gospel provides us this, an approach to marriage that is realistic understanding the danger and the opportunities. The good news of Jesus gives us an approach to our marriage that is realistic, that helps us understand both the dangers of marriage, but then also the opportunity of marriage. The first thing, and the way that it does that, is that we can expect the sin and shortcomings of our spouse. You're ultimately saying on your wedding day, I know that you're going to hurt me. I know there will be walls. As Jesus saw our sin and our shortcomings. Secondly, the gospel provides for us to have a way of having realistic expectations of our spouse. Understanding that you're not going to complete me. Only Jesus can do that. As Jesus approached us knowing that it would cost him. Thirdly, it gives us an approach of self-sacrificial love. Whatever it takes, you can say on your wedding day and consistently in your marriage, you will hurt me and you will not always do your share, but I choose to serve you relentlessly as Jesus self-sacrificially serves me. Fourthly, it leads you into relentless pursuit of a wooing, saying, I'm coming after you. I will woo you as Jesus pursues us. And then it allows us to quickly extend forgiveness. As I have been extended Christ's forgiveness, so I will extend it to you. Oswald Chambers, related to forgiveness, says this, We talk glibly about forgiving when we have never been injured. When we are injured, we know that it is not possible, apart from God's grace, for one human being to truly forgive another human being. And this is the way in which Jesus 
forgives us. The gospel gives us a new approach. It gives us a new rubric for how we can grow, understanding the danger and the opportunity of our marriages. So the question that I have for us as we transition, as we go to communion, is which approach to marriage are you going to take? Will you take cultures? Or will you take Christ? John Vanier said this, We all have to choose between two ways of being crazy. The foolishness of the gospel and the nonsense of the values of our world. We all have to choose between two ways of being crazy, the foolishness of the gospel and the nonsense of the values of our world. So which way shall you choose as it relates to marital love? Marital love provides for us an incredible picture of the gospel. Now as we transition today to communion, Communion is an incredible opportunity. It's a celebration of what Jesus has done for us. It's a celebration of the life that he offers us. It's a celebration of the opportunity for rescue and restoration of our physical intimacy, our emotional intimacy. But it's also an opportunity for those of us who are married in this room, after a message like today, to ask the question, how are we doing But more than just, how are we doing? You need to ask yourself the question, how am I doing? Am I wooing my spouse? Am I calling them out of hiding? Am I preparing an environment? Am I preparing a flourishing place where they can actually flourish in our relationship? And communion provides an opportunity to do that. You know, in the scriptures, as it relates to communion, it says that if if you have any sort of reconciliation to be made with another human being, be reconciled before celebrating communion. Some of us today maybe recognize that there is some reconciliation that needs to happen in some of our relationships, and maybe in particular those of us that are married in our marriage. I would encourage you, I would press you, I would challenge you to pursue that. And in a room this size with the number of married people in this room, I recognize that there are a lot of marriages here that are not probably in a great place right now. Divorce has maybe come up, separation has maybe come up. Some of you are maybe sitting in this room and you're lost about it. Maybe it's not your choice. Maybe someone is deciding, I need to leave you. And so maybe today is an opportunity for you to surrender that to God and say, God, I don't know what's going to happen with my marriage, but I pray for my spouse. I pray that as I meditate and reflect on what the truths of the gospel mean to me, that my spouse would also meditate and reflect upon the truths of the gospel as well. And if you are a child, if you're a millennial, statistics show us that as millennials, you are like one of the newest and largest generations of parents or of people who have parents that have been divorced. And so many of you are sitting there and you're like, I am so confused about marriage because my parents got divorced. And so the last thing that I ever want to do is get divorced. May you hear that Jesus loves you, that he's for you, that he's not against you. And based upon the rubric that he gives us in the gospel of forgiveness, of grace, your relationship, your eventual relationship, if you desire to be married, does not have to go in the same direction that your parents did. You need to hear that. 
because restoration and rescue and new life is possible in and through Jesus Christ. And so as we come to the table of communion today, may we reflect upon what Jesus has done for us, the opportunity that he has given us, and the thankfulness that he approached us, understanding the danger of what it would mean to get involved with you and with me. And say, thank you, Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're just exploring, someone dragged you here, we just ask that you let communion pass before you, but enter into communion. If you're in right relationship, if you're understanding the good news of Jesus. And so may we respond together. Simply take the elements. I'll come back after a song, after it's been distributed, and we'll take it all together. But as we respond, let's reflect upon what Jesus has done together today.